All right, well, I want to get into the Word tonight. Now, uh, I feel like if this candle over here disappears, then I'll know that I've preached for too long. Doesn't mean I'm going to stop. It just means I'll know that I've preached for too long. But uh, uh, hopefully these things hang on until the end of service tonight. Uh, we turned some of the fans off, so if you're getting hot up here in the front, it's, uh, uh, it's not a hot flash. We just turned the fans off. All right. So we're going to talk about... Christ the King, right? This is week five of the Advent. If you've got your bulletins, you can find the notes inside your bulletin. They're also attached to this video on our website if you're watching the video, and they're attached to this podcast if you're listening to the audio. And so here's our, our big picture point tonight. This is what we're going after, is that at his first Advent, Jesus came as the suffering servant to redeem his kingdom. At his second advent, Jesus will come as exalted king to establish his eternal throne among us. Right? So Jesus came the first time. He came as a suffering servant. And, and, and the truth is, is that it made things really complicated. And that's what I want to talk about tonight is that things were complicated. Because the people were expecting a king and they got a suffering servant. And now here we are, uh, we are redeemed in the blood of Jesus, praise God, but we're also living in the in-between because he came to redeem his kingdom, but he has not yet come back to fully establish his kingdom. And so we're living in the in-between, that the kingdom is at hand, but the kingdom is not yet fully established. And that can be a difficult place to live. Because we have all the promises of God and all the goodness of God, but yet we still live with difficulty and disappointment and suffering and struggle, and we're caught in this in-between. And I think this is a great time to talk about it because, let's be honest, the holidays can be complicated, right? We're supposed to be full of joy, but sometimes we're just numb, and we're just melancholy, or we just flat out feel despair in the holiday season. And we can't just snap ourselves out of it. We're surrounded by loved ones, but sometimes all we can do is think about the ones that aren't here and the ones that aren't with us. We're supposed to gather with family and have fun with family, but sometimes we have weird relationships with family and there's things that haven't been dealt with and there's passive-aggressive behavior and it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's complicated, and it's difficult, and that's where we live. We're living in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, and we recognize that he is a king, but that his kingdom is not yet fully established on earth. But yet we also rejoice in the love of the suffering servant and all that he redeemed for us, and so we go back and forth. The angel Gabriel that we heard Julia read so beautifully tonight. Man, she did a good job. That was, that was awesome. But the angel Gabriel made an announcement about Jesus, and he announced five things. Antonio, we'll skip to verse 30 here of, of Luke chapter 1. 
The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And it's interesting because the angel Gabriel was the same angel that made the announcement over Zechariah and Elizabeth about the baby that would be born to them. And the parallels between these announcements, because the first announcement about Jesus was simply that he will be great. He will be great. When the angel announced John the Baptist, he said he will be great in the sight of God which you can read between the lines and interpret that to mean that he won't be great in the eyes of man, right? That even Jesus said that John was the least among men, yet he's going to be the most exalted in heaven. John would be great in the eyes of God, even if in the eyes of man he was kind of weird, kind of an outcast, a little bit different. But with Jesus, the angel Gabriel simply said he will be great. Not in the eyes of anybody, but simply at the core of who he is would be greatness. The very source and the very flow of his life would be great. The second thing that the angel Gabriel announced is that he will be called the son of the most high God. When Zechariah was prophesying at the birth of John the Baptist, he said that he would be the prophet of the Most High God. But with Jesus, we know that he would be called the Son of the Most High God. And I love this. C.S. Lewis, one of the great thinkers of Christianity, said it like this. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Right? Because what did John write? To as many as received him. God would give them right, the right to be called the sons of God. And so the Son of God became a man so that men could be called sons of God. He will be called the Son of the Most High God. His third announcement was that God would give him David's throne. He would have the throne of David. And, and we'll read here in just a minute. We'll understand that to any uh, Jewish person hearing this announcement would immediately equate this to the Messiah. That the angel was announcing the Savior, the long-awaited one, because they knew that the Savior would sit upon David's throne. And he went on in number four to say, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob being another uh, phrase or another way of saying the nation of Israel. And we know nowadays that in the New Testament, the church, the body of Christ is the nation of Israel. And that Jesus would reign over us forever. And finally, number five, that his kingdom will have no end. So he would have the throne of David he would reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. As this young lady, Mary, is hearing these announcements, she would be thinking of all the messianic prophecies that connected the Messiah to the throne of David, and specifically to the eternal throne of David. Right? Think about Numbers 24, 17. And this would be the prophecy 
that the wise men were referring to when they said they saw a star in the sky that announced the birth of the king of the Jews. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And so more than a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, they prophesied, not now, not near, it's a long way off, but a star will rise above Israel. And that star will announce the rising up of a king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the prophet Nathan prophesying the word of the Lord over King David. He said, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, referring to Solomon, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skipping to verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. King David had a prophetic word over his life that he would have an eternal throne. And that someone would sit upon that throne forever. Right? Daniel had this vision. This has been the, the core passage of our teaching series this, this entire time of coming on the clouds, that our king will come again on the clouds. Daniel 7 and verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Right? Daniel had a vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds and being given an eternal kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 9, one of the most famous prophecies that we read at Christmas time, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Jumping ahead to Isaiah 11, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And then finally, we go to Jeremiah 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings. 
So this prophecy says the Messiah will not only be the king upon David's throne, but he will be the high priest who stands before God for us. We read all of those scriptures to understand that for this young Jewish woman to hear the throne of David and a kingdom will never end, she would have known immediately that we are talking about the Messiah because of all of these prophecies, they knew that the Messiah would come and sit upon the throne of David forever. But here's where it got complicated. They had all these prophecies of a king, and so they expected that when the king came, he would establish his kingdom immediately, and it would look like what they wanted it to look like. And isn't it the reality of our lives that when things don't look the way we want them to look, that's when our relationship with God gets complicated. That's when our faith wavers. That's when we struggle and when we doubt. So let's talk about this complicated journey that Jesus went on with people's expectations. We know that the Magi, the wise men, came to worship the king of the Jews. And we can understand from Scripture that by the time they found him following the star, he was probably a two-year-old little boy. And for these wise men, it didn't matter that he didn't have a throne or a kingdom. They bowed down and worshiped him. Why? Because they trusted the Scriptures. Now, why would wise men from Babylon... Trust the scriptures of Israel. Because over 500 years before Christ was born, a young Jewish boy was taken captive into Babylon. And he was given a Babylonian name. They called him Daniel. And Daniel was raised up in Babylon until he took a place of such influence in the empire that he was the one who taught their priests and their wise men. And the teachings of Daniel were handed down generation after generation for over 500 years until the star finally rose. And these wise men came and said, we don't care that he's two. We don't care that he doesn't have a throne. We're going to worship him. He is the king. The problem is that not everybody felt that way. King Herod, when he heard about a new king of the Jews, feared for his own throne. And out of that fear, he set off the slaughter of the innocents as he wanted every boy that was two years old and younger to be executed so that he could protect his own throne. The devil knew that Jesus was called to be a king. So the devil came and offered Jesus a shortcut to being a king. Bow down to me, the devil said. And I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. When Jesus began his preaching ministry, after being filled with the Holy Spirit and resisting the temptations of the devil when he was alone in the wilderness, Jesus entered into his ministry. And what did he preach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus' followers, when they understood that he was declaring himself to be the Messiah, they wanted to make him a king by force. John 6, 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, 
What sign had he had performed? He had just fed thousands of people miraculously with just a few loaves. When they saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What do they mean by the prophet and why is prophet capitalized? Because they're thinking of Deuteronomy 18 when God told Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you, the Messiah. And so they recognized this is the Messiah that had been promised to Moses, that had been promised to David, that had been promised through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all of the prophets. So verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They figured out he was the Messiah, so what did they want to do? They wanted to force a revolution against Rome and establish him as a king and start a war. And that's not what Jesus came to do. And so he had to slip away. Jesus declared himself as a king with the most anticlimactic triumphal entry that ever happened. There was no chariots. There was no horses. There was no trumpets. There was no war that had been won. There was simply a man riding a baby donkey with his followers throwing coats and palm branches on the ground. But Jesus was declaring himself to be a king, but not the kind of king they were expecting. So what did the Pharisees do? The religious rulers of the day, they sentenced him to execution as a blasphemer. Matthew 26, as they were questioning him on trial, it says, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you or I command you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see and look at the scriptures he points to to declare himself the Messiah, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further proof do we need witnesses for? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, he declared that his kingdom was not of this world. And Pilate could not understand. In John 18, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus said, yes, I am a king, but it doesn't look the way you think it looks. 
And Pilate couldn't understand. His only response was, what is truth? The Roman soldiers and the Jews mocked him as a king. They pressed a crown of thorns into his forehead. And after they had flogged him and beaten him, they covered him in a purple robe. And they bowed down to him and said, your majesty, before they hung him on a cross. On the top of that cross, they nailed a sign that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the Jews walked by and said, if you're the king, take yourself off the cross. Come down yourself. And Jesus died upon that cross. And his followers scattered and went into hiding. The Son of God came to earth and disappointed the expectations of just about every single person he came into contact with. And yet in the process, gave his life to redeem mankind. It was complicated. Why? Because the Jews missed the suffering servant parts. They were just looking for the exalted king. They wanted to be done with Rome. They were tired of living under Roman rule. And they wanted the exalted king. But there were just as many prophecies of the suffering servant. The most famous was Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." They missed the suffering servant part. They missed the part that he would come and be lowly and have no majesty about him and be unrecognizable as anything special. And yet he would give it all for us. And then would come an exalted king. Revelation 19.11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Come on, there is an exalted king coming. 
He came as a lowly servant, but he's coming back as an exalted king. He came anonymous, born in a stable, laid in a manger. Shepherds, the lowliest of society, were the first to come to see him. But when he comes again, it will not be anonymous. And he will not be ignored. So I wrote it like this in your notes. The first advent was the ultimate expression of God's love. God sent his son to die for us so that we don't have to be lost in our own sin, so that we don't have to forever be separated from God. What an expression of love. The second advent will be the ultimate expression of God's supremacy. God is Lord. He has authority over all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes again, he will leave no doubt about that. Michael Youssef, who is an Egyptian-American pastor on the mainland, he said it like this, While many try to ignore Jesus, when he returns in power and might, this will be impossible. William Tiptaft, a British preacher in the 1800s, said if you had a thousand crowns, you should put them all on the head of Christ. And if you had a thousand tongues, they should all sing his praise, for he is worthy. So what do we have? We live in the complicated in-between. The first advent was the ultimate expression of God's love. And so as we celebrate Christmas and the baby that was born, it causes us to be filled with the love of God. We love because he first loved us. His love overwhelms us, and his goodness brings us to repentance. But then we know that there is a second advent, that he is coming as king of kings in all of his supremacy. And so what does this one do? It causes us to surrender to his lordship. Michael Blackaby, you may recognize that name. Henry Blackaby wrote one of the most famous Bible studies ever written. It was called Experiencing God. Michael Blackaby is his grandson, who is also a preacher and a church planter and a writer. Michael Blackaby wrote this. Jesus has a right to interrupt your life. He is Lord. When you accepted him as Lord, you gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. So as we live in between two advents, remembering both gives us the balance we need. As we remember the first advent, we are filled with love. But when we remember that there is a second advent that is coming, we are humbled under his lordship. And we need both because, listen, when you have lordship without love, you have legalism and religiosity. And no one is attracted to that. But if you have love without lordship, you have a really sloppy grace and your life doesn't reflect the glory of God. But when you have both, when you have love and lordship, you can live in the complicated in-between and we can face the struggles and the disappointments and the letdowns of life because we know that God loves us. And we can surrender before him because we know that everything is in his hands. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we can live our lives surrendered before the king of kings 
and know that we will live the most abundant life we can. We find the balance in between. Tony, can you do me a favor? Can you release the keiki from their classrooms and bring the keiki back in? And Uncle Clayton, if you could do me a favor and bring the lights low as we're going to begin to transition in this celebration of the Advents into our family candle lighting service. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As we light the candles tonight, and we're going to stand in one large circle as the family of God, and we're going to sing to the Lord together, I want to encourage you to meditate on living in between. We live in between the first Advents and the second Advents. It's complicated, it's messy, but it's also full of love and the power and the authority of the kingdom of God. There's no other place to be. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be embraced. And we rejoice that our king is coming. And we rejoice that he came to redeem us and pay the price for us.